Hello and welcome. This is Aidan Kay, and you are listening to the first episode of my Digging Deeper podcast. As some of you may know who follow me, I started a blog in August 2016 that was really inspired by motivating young up-and-coming artists, sharing insight into the world of the music industry from experience that I have had in the short time that I've been working in it, as well as sharing insights from other people that I have been fortunate enough to work with over the years. And what I've decided to do is actually start a podcast series where I interview these people, I get to know them, I get to share some of the info that you might not know about these icons that you look up to in the music industry, and really just breaking down how they got to where they are, uh, which is what actually inspired the name Digging Deeper, just going a little bit deeper into their lives, what inspired them to get into their fields, what have been some of the obstacles that they've overcome in their careers, as well as some advice that they can share, because it's very easy for me to say, this is what you should be doing. This is how you should be growing your brand. This is how you can further your career in the music industry. But that's one person's opinion. So I really wanted to get some of my friends that I am fortunate enough to be in contact with to share their insights. So what I will be doing is actually shooting video interviews with these people. So if you are somebody that needs this sort of visual stimulation, if you like watching these things on YouTube, all of the content will actually be on YouTube. YouTube as well, as well as in this podcast. And it will just be sort of an hour long interview slash conversation with these people that I really feel have helped mold the electronic music industry in this country, as well as people who I feel have had some influence in my life. Um, as I said, it's been people that I've been fortunate enough to come across in my eight years in the music industry, but it's people who have really influenced me and who have been able to help me along my journey. And hopefully they will have some information to share with you uh, that can help you so without further ado, let's get into the first episode. In this hour-long interview, I chat to Ricardo da Costa, who some of you may know as a DJ, but he is actually also a promoter. He is the person behind Spring Fiesta. He is also a director of Soul Candy and was instrumental in growing their brand over the last 15 years, as well as a father of two very gorgeous twins. So... This is a conversation that I had with him on top of the rooftop of his new venue called the Ivy in Bedford View. So there are some issues with audio where the wind blows. Unfortunately, it was out of my control. But I think if you are really interested in learning more about being a DJ and his journey, you will still be able to get a lot out of this interview. So here we go. What's up, everyone? Uh, this is Aiden Kay, and in this video, I'm going to be chatting to the big boss, Mr. Ricardo da Costa, about what it's like to be a DJ, as well as what you can really learn if you want, if that's what you want to be doing, and that you have a passion for DJing. So, as I mentioned in the last video that I put out, somebody messaged me on Instagram about what it would take to be a DJ without having to produce music, because the reality is is that a lot of kids nowadays who want to produce music go into production, whether it's out of necessity or out of passion for making music. And it was a question that really sort of caught me off guard for myself because I'm very opinionated to the fact that you have to produce music. I think it's possible, but I think you're better off if you are making music that people will be able to get to know you and be able to grow your brand off of. So what I wanted to do was ask some other people their opinion and just use this time to get to know the people that I grew up being motivated by and being inspired by. So I'm very fortunate that Ricardo invited me to 
the new venue that he's launching. And just, I just wanted to say thank you to him for having me. Cool, man. Thanks for uh, considering me for your podcast. Cool. Cool. Um, what I don't think a lot of people know is that actually before I knew what sort of Beatport or what Pioneer or what Deep House being different to Tech House was that the first sort of introduction that I had to house music was through Soul Candy and through the releases that Soul Candy was putting out. And I was fortunate enough that my parents would take me to music or look and listen every weekend or every two weekends. And we would look through CDs and I'd take home like a CD or two. And the most sort of standout release for me was actually Electro Candy because I didn't know any better of what sort of the genres were, but there was something about those albums, specifically the first one. And I mean, the second one I sort of got into a bit later, but the, the disc that you mixed on the second one, I think it was, um, was like my favorite one. And the first gig that I actually ever played was like an under 18 club event, like DJ competition kind of thing. And I, I never heard of a sort of extended edit or a radio edit. I just, I, I knew that this music was dance music and that because it was coming from Soul Canyon, it was coming from Ricardo da Costa, it must have been good. So I went and I played this gig, but I didn't know about Beatport or where you could buy music that you'd mix. I didn't even know what beat matching was. And I took this disc of Electro Candy 2 and I was trying to play like, I remember playing like two or three songs off of it. And I mean, I didn't know any better. It was just like, I knew these songs were good. So like when I decided that I wanted to actually speak to other people about what it's like to just be, a, well, not just be a DJ, but be a DJ and grow your brand from that, you were the first person that came to mind. Cool. That's um, good to know. I didn't know that. <laughs> we've known each other for a while. Yeah, I, I mean, we've, we've known each other because I've been fortunate enough to work with you. And I mean, the thing that, that strikes me, like I, I knew you'd been DJing for long, but I mean, your career as a DJ has almost extended longer than I've been alive. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to say this. Makes me sound old. I get it. I get it. But I mean, that's for, for me who's been doing it for eight years, and that feels like a long time. I can't imagine what it takes to do it for almost three times that. So I think what I wanted, where I really wanted to start was just to give people sort of a background or context to why you got into DJing. Like what motivated you to say one day, I want to be a DJ, whether it was as a hobby or as a career choice? Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I think, I think one of the, the, the reasons uh, I've been able to sustain myself over such a long period of time is because, you know, I never approached it back then you you know being a dj wasn't really a career choice um uh you know I, I got into the whole djing thing because uh i was obsessed about new music and dance music um you know at the time when when i found this passion for club based music which took different shapes and sizes there was high energy um and and then the you know, the birth of house music was around that time. There was techno, uh, and techno back then and techno now is very different, but there's a lot of similarities. Um, like, I, I just found myself drawn to always getting access to the most upfront music. And back then, uh, club DJs used to record their sets on tape decks. So you could hear them talk over the, the mixes and whatever. And... I had a few friends who had friends that were DJs um, in, in clubs and they would always get these tapes. And I was like, I need to get access to this music because 
those those mixes and the music that were being played uh, at those clubs were imported and you know there wasn't a di digital generation at that point so it was really difficult to get hold of that music and there were these tapes that were floating around and and you know and i'd have to record those tapes and i was just like i became obsessed with getting upfront music and i i kind of started to let that digest a little bit and then you know went to a few parties knew a few people that had a few mobile dj sort of setups and whatever and like i I became very intrigued because there, there's a clear synergy and parallel to being passionate about music and then being the conduit to playing the music to people and, and, and having them dance. So I was like, I think I could be pretty good at this. And I, like I became intrigued with the technical aspect of it and um, never really had the opportunity to, or, or, or an outlet in order to learn. There was no DJ school back then. Um, so my first attempt was, you know, there was this one mobile DJ that was uh, in the same neighborhood and I met them via random people and he used to import all his CDs and he used to be a mobile DJ for parties and that kind of thing. And I struck up a friendship with him and he started to give me music and he had a setup at home. He had a pair of SLs and everything and, it, I mean, he was fortunate enough to have the best turntables uh uh, the industry standard turntables uh, that were out there so uh, kind of got to play around with them a little bit but it was consisted more of me just spinning the record back because I was just like wow you know this is pretty cool but not really understanding the technical aspect because no one was showing me and he kind of spoke through some things which didn't really make sense to me but anyway uh, you know it, it was a daunting process and I just left it and then I started working uh, one of my first student jobs as a watch salesman at Edgar's uh, at the East Strand Mall, believe it or not. And um, there was a guy, uh, Ian Alden, uh, who was also working in the watch counter, who I'd, I'd been to primary school with and kind of lost touch with him uh, after primary school. And he was a few standards or grades uh, ahead of me. And um, he was kind of a nerd in school, so it wasn't anyone that I really would socially connect with. It was just like we knew each other because it was a school and it was primary school and whatever. And uh, we started working together and, you know, we started chatting and it's like, what do you do? Oh, no, I've been working here, I do this. And, you know, I'm a DJ as well. I'm like, really? Like, like house music, Don? Like, he's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, been playing for like four years. Now, at that time, if you had been playing for four years, you were like, bordering on being one of the pioneers mm. of, of, you know, the scene. But he, he wasn't really popular, but he had been doing it for a long time and he was just passionate about yeah. it. But he was really passionate about, like, the American house scene mm. and, you know, the Strictly Rhythms and, and you know, uh, there was another label back then, uh, uh, Tribal Underground, and there were these proper house music labels that um, that... I'd kind of heard of, but I wasn't really exposed to that world yet. And, um, you know, I'd befriended him. You know, we were mature and, uh, you know, and in high school and whatever, and, and he had already matriculated. And, um, you know, I, I said to him, I said, look, can I come to your house and mess around a bit and can you show me a few things? And uh, he said, sure. 
And I went to his house and he had these old hi-fi turntables, uh, which had pitch control. The, mm. the old hi-fi turntables uh, um, uh, used to have these little round knob pitch controls. So he had two of them uh, and they were very weak motors, I mean, compared to what SLs are. Um, uh, the way you would operate these turntables were very different. And he would show me, he said, like, you know, you, you cue the song, this is how you cue the song, so when you see people do this, you know, you'd see the record being mm. taken back, you cue the song, and you're basically trying to line it up with that song, and that, you know, music has got structure, and he, he kind of gave me like a, a, a an entry-level sort of understanding of how it all comes together. And... Um, I became obsessed. There's, there's no other way to, you know, I became challenged in order to, 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 to learn how to become a DJ and um, obsessed with music, obsessed with the art, the, the feel that taking out a record and playing a song that you really loved, um, the emotion that it evoked in you and, and knowing what that could do to a bunch of people. Yeah. And, and, and having those short-term goals to say, well, I want to play in front of 100 people. I want to play in front of 300 people. And putting yourself in circumstances and that, that, that you know, you can get that sort of experience. So I, I wouldn't go out. I would go whenever there was a free opportunity and I wasn't irritating him. I would ask him if I can come in and practice at his house. And he had a, a, a brother called Kevin Alden staying in the same house and his brother taught him and... Uh, Ian started to lose his interest in the whole DJing front. He wasn't really making any breaks or didn't play any gigs or whatever. He was just doing it at home. And his brother was trying to chase it a little bit more aggressively. And his style in terms of his technical ability was a little bit more creative that I could learn a little bit more mm. from him. So just by watching and practicing and asking questions, and thank God that they were um, accommodating uh, that you know that that they would allow me the time to learn in their space and to be exposed to really good music, which essentially influenced me in 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 the the direction that I took musically. I, I think ultimately I would have uh, come to the same point, but I got I got exposed to proper house music. Um, Classics like Andrea Mendes, Bring Me Love, when it was an underground record, not even when it was a, a commercial record. Um, and, uh, you know, guys like Green Velvet, which back then was a proper techno underground, you know, he's a bit more mainstream now. And it was before he did La La Land or whatever, like proper techno. And, uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate, you know, from there... Uh, through my student job selling watches, I was able to save enough money to buy my first uh, pair of turntables and a mixer. And um, they were belt-driven turntables, very thin platter, and you had to cue very softly or else the needle would jump. But it was my first yeah, set of turntables. And, and, you know, that's really where my whole journey started. I, I just, you know, every bit of spare money that I had would go into buying records and um, just try to put myself in, in circumstances where regardless of it was a braai or um, uh, any sort of social gathering 
Or, you know, I'd say, look, I'll bring my turntables, we'll plug it into a hi-fi and we'll, you know, we'll play. And I start to get a, a bit of experience in playing to people and seeing what worked and what didn't work. I didn't have a big record selection back then because I was paying for everything yeah. myself and I you only limited a to what you so could afford. I rocked those first 30 records like you can't believe uh, to the point where there was so much static on them. It's just like I just played them over and over again. And I'd, I'd buy like maybe two to five records a month. And I just put that in perspective. Like today you get 20 songs a week and back then you would really get the most value out of those songs and you you know you yeah, could you only buy to. x amount yeah i mean some of the bigger djs and established djs would buy more but you know, it, it was expensive yeah. it was expensive and you just songs had a longer lifespan yeah. back then so i you know I, I kept at it and and try to play every party and networking with other djs and you know, if there was a party they would book me for and if I was influential in whatever party, I'd book them for it. And then there was a, a pizzeria in Boxburg called the Zuri's, which um, uh, was owned by uh, Phil Lozidis. And um, he was a p pizzeria with a twist. Uh, you know, he had DJs. He stayed open until 3, 4 in the morning. Um, and he started to get DJs there, and he gave us an opportunity to to play there. You know, it was me, it was Mark Stent, there's another guy, William Watson. Um, he gave us our first break to have our first residency, even yeah. though we weren't being paid. We were yeah. being paid with a pizza <laughs> and, a, and a milkshake. <laughs> and that, that went on for like three years. That was my pay. I didn't get paid 50 rand, I didn't get paid 20 rand. I got paid with a pizza, and a milkshake mm. and um, and it was okay like uh, uh, you know the, the experience that, that we got there was invaluable because it landed up being quite a hot spot mm. um, it became like the pre and after Jaws uh, unless you went to like a rave club which went on until you know early hours of the morning but um, it became a bit of an institution and we were residents and then we started to extend on that and start to host parties and at Azuri's and it just became uh, it became a proper residency like a club residency and uh, you know through that I was able to get my first club residency at Flyhouse um, through Flyhouse I was able to get into H2O and through all of that I mean I was playing at ESP I was playing at you know the, the there, there was a snowball effect that yeah. started to happen that when you start to play at these iconic places, um, other opportunities start to come along and you know, and you start to play at house parties and whatever. And um, How long know, did it take you to get comfortable with playing for that sort of magnitude of audience? Because I mean, going from playing to 20 people at a braai or at a sort of like a mobile DJ setup to then playing at like the biggest clubs and festivals in the country... How long did it take? Where, was it a point where you went, okay, I need to start looking for these gigs and trying to reach out to these people? Or was it a case of just being thrown into the deep end by association of the other places you were playing? No, I think it's a, it's a, it was a hybrid of both. And, and you know, uh, you can't, there's no pull for experience. Yeah. There's no quick fix. So 
I, you know, I built the confidence up from years of, you know, playing at Azuri's was a perfect uh, sort of training ground for me to be able to know how to play to a bigger crowd mm. and seeing what responded well and what didn't respond well and whatever. It was invaluable because that transition into clubs was more of a hunger than uh, having to adjust to a bigger crowd. I, I was super ready to go to the next level mm. um, where it became an adjustment period and, and you know, where the nerves kicked in is bigger sound systems. Um, back then, you know, clubs weren't engineered to accommodate DJs. They were just clubs. So yeah. the monitoring system was bad. You had to mix in your headphones, which was, I was always and still am today terrible at. I can never mix within the queue of the mixer on my headphones and get it spot on. It, it was, it's just... It's never been how I've conditioned myself mm. to, to, to DJ. I've always needed a proper monitoring system. And a lot of clubs had delays on their monitoring systems and it just, it, 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 it became really challenging. So that was the nerve-wracking part for me. Um, but my hunger and enthusiasm to get to play the bigger gigs and whatever, I, like, I was just now rolling and I'm like, cool, well, I want to play here and I want to play there and I just wanted to play everywhere. But throughout this whole time, never, I mean, you always wish to accomplish uh, the most you can in, in, in anything that you do. I never thought it would be a, a career path. Mm. At that point, I was just loving what I was doing, you know, chicks dig it, partying, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I was studying uh, after high school, I started studying a BCom marketing degree. But at that point, I already knew that this is a real thing. Yeah. This, is, this is, you know, I'm getting paid real money, um, more 10 times what I was earning in any student job. Um, I already started to throw my own events. I got a taste for being a promoter and, 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 and hosting uh, things. So, like... I started to taste those different aspects of the business, but I was still always brought back to the desire to have music up front yeah. and the desire to have it before anyone else. Mm. And that, that is a very important theme throughout my whole career is that I then went hunting for a job in record stores, not because I felt that... Um, that was a career path that I wanted to choose. I felt that it was a career path that would help improve my DJing. Yeah. And um, it could start to set me apart from everyone yeah. else. Um, so the first record store that I worked at was Mental Groove. And I now had an ability to sell music to other DJs, to order music for the shop and order music for myself yeah. and, and have an opportunity to get it before anyone else does. And, you know... Do you think that molded your taste in music? Having it first and sort of... not Maybe not your, your taste in what you enjoy, but in what you play, to be able to hear something before most people have heard it and go, this is going to be good, and then say, I'm going to play that ahead, a couple of weeks ahead of other guys. No, I think there were lots of other influences like, you know... 
Ian and Kevin that 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 I learned how to play and you know growing up listening to Depeche Mode and whatever but being put in a position where you have an opportunity to order music and and when you're a DJ and you're passionate about music or whatever you you've got some sort of ear for music but what sets average DJs in terms of music selection to the really exceptional exceptional ones is their ear, their ability to hear something that is constructed in a particular way that will sound special. Yeah. And I, I, I quickly realized that I, I believed that I had a talent in, in having an ear for music. Yeah. And that skill was honed in a, in a record store because what is the core objective of a record store is to bring in music that people will buy and buy quickly so that you can get your next shipment in. So I became entrenched in listening to music over the phone with international suppliers, finding all the best music. And now I was in a position to say, well, okay, cool. When I go and play and I get some upfront shit, um, that's already over and above my skill set and, and whether people like my music or not, there was going to be fresh stuff that other people didn't have. Even if it was for a couple of weeks, it was still an edge. Yeah. And that was a massive advantage for me. Um, I also like when I started shopping at, at record stores, you know, I felt that the guys behind the counter were the biggest cocks ever. Mm. Um, I didn't feel that they really wanted, like going to buy my first record is the most intimidating process because <laughs> it's like, what are you going to ask for yeah. genre-wise and is that actually um, going to be acknowledged as a genre to him like yeah. you, you want to give him references but like you want to come across as being cool yeah and uh, there was what was the guy's name DJ Clint who sold me my first record that I actually went to a record store um, and I think it was my stepmom like dropped me off and I, it was very intimidating and uh, I just said to him I was like yeah you know Looking like for this, and I started to reference CDs that I used to buy that he could relate to, and, and thank God that actually worked yeah. because I didn't quite know how to. Like, I, I, I said to him, I like house music. Okay, well, what house music? Okay. <laughs> and, and I wasn't experienced enough then. So, like, my exposure to record stores was just like it was a very intimidating environment. Yeah. Lots of egos and whatever. And, I also just wanted to change that whole philosophy. So it was just like, you know, have bro moments with everyone and like, what's up, bro? Cool. Like, just put everyone at ease because there's nothing better than just a guy just feeling comfortable because you know exactly what he wants. So uh, I guess from a negative experience that I had, I, I turned it into a positive and I, and I really put a lot of love and emphasis into the job. You know, it, it wasn't a, a a career path that I was going to do forever. But for the time that I did it, I was going to do it the best that I could. And but at the same time, benefiting from it. So, working in a re record store definitely gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, maybe opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I wasn't working in a record store. Maybe it would. I, I don't know because I didn't take that path. But it allowed me to network a bit. 
service DJs with records that appreciated what I was trying to do for them and they in turn paid the favor by booking me at places and and I'll acknowledge that you know it, but that's life it's about circumstance it's about who you know sometimes and and the skill is important but it's not you know the best man doesn't always win yeah uh, like I may have not been the best DJ around and whatever but I knew I was good and I knew I played good music and if I was getting opportunities through the place where I worked great. Yeah. So I spent a great deal of my time working in, I mean, I worked at Mental Groove for like four years or five years. And then my, uh, you know, my evolution or, or my appetite in wanting to evolve to the next step kind of, you know, wanted to be working in a, in a record company. You know, having worked five years in, 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 in a record store, I was like, okay, well, now I want the next challenge, uh, which is to work in, in, in the record label business. I felt that the skills that I was applying to, to a record store could be uh, honed in on a record label basis. And now there was a strategy to that too because record labels had access to music sometimes before record shops. And again, it was just that next step where I was like, I want the best upfront music and I want an abundant amount of access to it. So um, I applied, I started engaging Nick Berger um, at Gallo at the time because he was promoing a lot of DJs, but I wasn't getting promoted. I'm like, fuck. I want to get in the mix. Yeah. Connected with him is notorious, notorious for being quite difficult. Um, but hit it off with him quite well, and he started sampling me, and I started to understand what he did within the record label side. And I'm like, that's definitely a path that I wanted to go in. But I was still very passionate about the DJing world and whatever, and I was really trying to push my career. And around that time, production there wasn't a, a great deal of pressure or expectation for DJs to produce music. I mean, obviously, there were producers that were DJs and um, DJs that were producers, but it wasn't a big thing. But it started to develop. Uh, the popularity of dance music in South Africa started to edge into radio and... and, and uh, the odd song was getting played on radio and not just on dance shows and it just everything started to 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 expand and um, uh, when I was a uh, resident at Flyhouse um, uh, one of my mentors uh, DJ Scotty um, he I mean the sweetest dude uh, till today we, we mates and um he started to, to dabble in production quite a bit. And um, I was, I felt very envious uh, of the fact. And, but at the same time, acknowledged that I was never really a very technical guy. Uh, I didn't have a natural uh, uh, sort of um, skill set to adapt to technical situations. So... I mean, I think a lot of a lot of guys underestimate that when they get into this. They think that, okay, you can, 
you can just get into production like that. You can spend even a year or two and you can learn how to make music. But the reality is, is that it becomes so technical as you get to a level where you should be making music that's ready for release that that learning curve to go from knowing that house music needs a 4-4 kick drum to knowing how to set a threshold on a compressor is like two very different things. And I think to, to know in yourself that that's not the kind of person that you are is exactly what the whole reason that I'm doing this video is that there are people like that. There's a lot of people that might even say, okay, well, I have to produce and still try, but after two or three years of learning, it's just not their forte. Like they're not, they might not be interested in spending eight or nine hours a day sitting in front of a computer. Some people, as you said, your, your passion was being around people and playing records for them and like exposing them to new music. That's, that doesn't really tie in if you're going to go and sit the whole day in a studio locked by yourself. So I think it's a whole mental game of going, is that really what, what you want? Do you want to give up all that time to go and do that? So I think knowing that in yourself is exactly the reason that you're the perfect person yeah. to sort of speak about I, this. You know what? I, I, I was... I, I never felt that... I mean, I, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to produce music... And when I started to sink my teeth into the whole uh, understanding music theory and keys and production and plugins and uh, quantizing and uh, understanding, you know, what key a song's written in, and like, it, it's not a very sexy part of the business. Um, it, uh, it's, it's something that I gave a good go uh, uh scotty I, I started to produce music with scotty and and co-produced in terms of i was very much focused around ideas and he was the the engineer mm. uh, part of it which is a very common if not the most common way of of music getting out there because usually they you know there's a producer that produces for many other djs um and you know we we had some success together um where we we remixed stuff for um in in america we remixed a very popular track samantha james raz oh really official release got paid a thousand five hundred dollars for it um when was this uh, what year uh 2006 so like we had a fair amount of success uh, with with the production, but I never really um, was driven to learn how to produce music myself. Uh, and just you know, it had a moment of realism that it was never going to be me. And I tried. I, I worked on music with Ryan Murgatroyd. I, I put myself in circumstances that. Hopefully something would spark, but it was just never there. I realized that my expertise was on the other side of the fence, which is using my ear to determine what's good and what's not good, um, picking up talent, hearing talent, and how that talent can be crafted into something that is tangible and, and marketable, you know, that, that became more of a realization for me. But parallel to that, 
I still love to play records that I loved to people. And, you know, that, that's okay. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I wanted to maximize everything that I could in my DJing career. And, and even till today, like I'm still driven to play the cool gig, the cool gigs, uh, gigs with, um, with international DJs warming up for them. I, I'm still very passionate about the scene and the music and the craft. Um, but, you know, wanting to be the best DJ in the country, producing music, uh, I, I was okay with not being that guy. Um, but, I mean, you've still managed to be able to play with those. those yeah. Sort of, the, the list of, of guys that you've played with, I was reading you by earlier, it's like that reads like, more than what people who have been producing music have been able to do. Everybody from sort of Axwell, Dead Mouse yeah, to mean, John Digweed and Sasha. It's like those people have pioneered their their fields as being sort of producer DJs. John Digweed specifically is somebody that I also look up to as a sort of tastemaker or putting sort of upfront music first. So of all those people, who have you felt that you've like been able to relate to the most that you've sort of come into contact with in your, your career as a DJ? Well, like internationally, the one that had the most influence musically from what he plays, technically from his ability, uh, was Eric Murillo. Uh, he, he is a DJ's DJ and that's really the best way I know how to describe it. And it's not to say that technically he's the best, um, but he's pretty damn fucking good. Um, but it's how he brings it all together. And I guess that's what makes each DJ unique is how you can package your story. And he has, he's very animated, uh, which incidentally, I'm not very animated behind the deck. So I never, really felt that that aspect of it um, spoke to me, uh, you know, as an influence. But um, everything else that he did in terms of how he constructed the music, his sets, the way he was able to manipulate the energy on the dance floor was extremely influential with me. Um, one thing that he was very famous for, which was a big influence for me in the style in terms of how I played was incorporating acapellas and samples into your, your DJ mixes which I've done throughout my whole career and it's been a big thing of when I was playing records I would buy acapella records and drop acapellas over instrumentals and um, he was the master at that he is the master at that uh, when CDJs became a thing uh, it became about how you can manipulate that acapella over yeah. a song and how you can, you know, loop it and create certain things and whatever. Well, did you, em did you embrace that sort of transition from turntables to CDJs uh, or was it something that... It, 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 look, it took, it took me a little while, but when, when the CDJ uh, 1000 came out... The first edition was game over for me. <laughs> I, 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 uh, the, the way that you could just manipulate the song, just through looping and things that you could do, that sorted it out for me from there. And then the cue points and how you can 
trigger certain cue points and, and, and loops and, 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 and samples from there. I was just like, vinyl what? <laughs> like I had no, I had no inclination of sticking with vinyl anymore. Yeah. Uh, I spent a great part of my career buying records, sourcing records, and, and I still love it today. But would I exchange it for where we're at now? Not a fuck. It's, it's what it's been able to do from a convenience point of view, from an accessibility point of view. And just, you know, when you're really in the mood and you're able to like, you know, drop different songs and loops and it, it, it got me excited about DJing yeah. again. And I guess that's the beauty of technology. There's always something new. I think it's moving a little bit too quickly sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, do you think that, obviously, as you mentioned, the, the advancement of technology has brought a huge ease of access to becoming a DJ. As you said, 20 years ago, you were limited to which records you could get and whether they were actually available for you. Somebody could have bought that record or bought every copy of it so that you couldn't have it. No, it's, so, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real thing. It, it, it changed the whole landscape because... Just like you said, uh, accessibility to music became a lot more viable for the common man. Yeah. The up-and-coming DJ could now, if he sourced it properly, digitally, he could have all the upfront shit. Um, but Do you I think, think that's made it better for the scene or has it sort of watered it down as some people might think? Uh, I think I think that it's, you know, uh, and, and that's just because of how... Music influences me, and, and, and upfront music influences me. I, I would have preferred it if there was a way that you could still have some. And there is. I mean, all the big labels around the world, they don't sample as much as they used to, or they sample after the song has been released. They maybe give it to a few key people, but they know that when it gets out, it's, it's yeah, out. Everybody it has spread it. like wildfire. So I'm lucky enough to still have some of those relationships in play, but. Um, yeah, you know, it, 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 it's just the evolution of things and you've got to embrace them. And if you can't beat them, join them. But I do think the whole, you know, technology advancements and whatever has, uh, I, I think it's, it's too rapid. People don't have an opportunity to, to, to settle on one thing for too long because there's just another thing coming mm -hmm. along. Um, but it, that's just life. It's life in all fronts, never mind just in, in the DJing world. But, you know, I'm still pretty much a, a two, three, if possible, CDJ guy, 2000 Nexus, all linked. I got, I use Rekordbox, which is the pioneer software to, to prepare your music. It speaks to the CDJ so much better. Most of the DJs I know don't use it, and I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, just loading it onto the USB it and having just, it to wait for it to load uh, the wave. It, 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 it's a game changer and, and, and how you can store your, your, your music. Mm. And I'm able to navigate my way around through whatever I want, whether I'm at a commercial club, I've got a commercial folder. I can, it's just so easy and seamless. And um, I've never gone to the tractor route uh, or, or Serato. Um, I felt that it was a bit too demanding of your attention yeah for sure. and if it was about uh, just having it as a glorified record box why invest all that money mm. into it there are some djs um out there that really use it for its full capacity um 
and they are able to do some amazing things that is very difficult to do on a CDJ. Um, and and cool, cool to them. I mean, a, a lot of the guys that produce their own music, they, you know, they, they use stems and, and uh, you know, they, they're just able to get the most out of the tractor and the, the, the controllers that you get with it yeah. and whatever. But very few locally that I've seen that really use it for what it's yeah. there for. So, like, one should not feel pressured to go any other way just because that's the new in thing. It's, it's ultimately what it comes down to is if you're a DJ, if you're learning how to be a DJ, if you want to become a DJ, whatever it is, all the stuff is all what works best for you. Ultimately, you've got a responsibility, which is to rock the crowd. And if you are able to do it in a way that is respectful for the time that you're performing, that you're not trying to steal the show at nine o'clock in the evening. If you can mature yourself in understanding that aspect of of the game in terms of knowing what to play, when to play, knowing what to do when you've lost a floor, because every DJ in the world loses a, a, a dance floor, if you have an ability to rectify the mistake that you've done, um, those are things that will define you. What equipment you use, and what, like the, those are just nice to haves. And if you are able to expose yourself to to these things, then uh, bet on you. Yeah. Um, and, and and dabble in everything, learn everything, see what, and just find something that works for you. But you're not any lesser DJ because you don't use a MIDI controller or. If, uh, 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 some sort of a fix module, a remix 1000 or whatever, doesn't make you any less. Ultimately, you're going to be defined in terms of how you can rock a crowd. And the fans or the the, the, the patrons that are dancing on that dance floor, the ones that matter, you know what I mean? And they will define your popularity. Yeah, for sure. How would you have gone about it if you were 18 years old now and you wanted to get into the scene as passionate as what you were back then? Now you want to become a DJ, but most of those vehicles that you had back then are no longer available to somebody now. Somebody watching this can go, that's, that's good to know. It's inspiring, but how would you, how do you think you would have to go about it now to get into it and to grow your brand as a DJ? I apply, maybe not, not, uh, I, I don't have as much time to do it, but I apply the same ethos that I did when I was trying to hunt for records and whatever, I play a, I, I've got my tricks in terms of how I'm able to get um, access to music or how I get to listen to new music that I can then maybe add to a wish list and find. I've got a system that works for me even today. And I know that till today, there's a lot of the guys that are newer, fresher, hungrier, more time to find music and whatever. And I, I know I still have that impact where I play music that they don't quite know or it's put together in a different way or whatever. So focus on, on if you only want to be a DJ and you don't want to produce your own music, focus on creating a, a balance that is um, special to you. You know what I mean? Like, you know, can you fuse house, tech house and techno in a set? If you can make that story make sense, that's kind of your thing. Mm. 
you know, if you're a bass house DJ, then make sure that you get access to the bass, to the best bass house, or try and create edits, or you, you got to find an angle to make you set yourself apart from everyone else, whether it's producing your own music, which in today's time, if you really want to make it, it is key, it is essential. But it doesn't have to be the only thing. If yeah. you're not, if you're not um, you know, talented at producing music, maybe work with someone that can. That can give you, uh, you know, a few tools. If not, maybe just learn some very basic editing tools so that you can create your own edits. Take an acapella, put it over an instrumental, chop it up into certain places. You've made your own edit. Um, you know, that would be one, you know, skill set that that every DJ. You have to know how to edit and. You know, most DJs these days are doing their mixes digitally. So, you know, you just, just make a bit of an effort that sets your sets apart from everyone else because you're just playing music that various people are playing out there just in a different order. Yeah. So how are you going to make that memorable? You know what I mean? So obviously in the, the sort of 23 years that you've been doing this, there's a lot has changed. I mean, we've discussed this now. But have there been sort of any moments that you've gone... I no longer want to be doing this or because it's changed so drastically, as I said, the, it's now very much a case of the DJs that are leading the, the sort of popularity are the ones that are producing music. Has there been a point where you've gone, this isn't actually what I want to do as a sort of a full-time, I wouldn't say full-time thing, but something where it's not just, okay, I'm just going to do this as a hobby? I think there's always, like, when you have a career as long as I've had and you've experienced different things you tend to be motivated more by some and not so motivated by others you know where I'm at right now um, look I'm, I'm a DJ to my core and I'm always gonna make sure that I please a crowd I'm never gonna oh well this is what I play and it's just what it is what it is I'm, I'm always gonna make a plan um but there are a few really commercial gigs that are really difficult to appease the crowd. And, you know, you got to ask you to play hip-hop. I'm not a hip-hop DJ. And the money sometimes does not justify the stress that you're going through. I often say to myself, like, you know, this is not why, one, I got into the game. Uh, and and it's not really something that's motivating me at the moment. And sometimes there are people that are committed and, and you know have the enthusiasm to fill those roles. Because um, I mean, I think people uh, people underestimate how taxing it is on you and your personal life to be a DJ. You give up so much time and sort of you give up moments in your life where you're unable to share experiences with other people because you're sacrificing it by going to a club and trying to trying to please people that aren't friends of yours. They, there's no sort of personal connection. You're giving so much of yourself to people that don't really know you. They don't know the kind of person you are. So I think people sort of underestimate that and there's there has to be something that keeps you motivated and keeps you wanting to do that, keeps you wanting to stay out until three or four in the morning and sort of go to clubs surrounded by drunk people. So there must be something inside of you that, that keeps you motivated. Look, 
there is nothing better in the world when you have the right music and you're playing at the right event and the equipment's right and the vibe is right and you, ha- you, know, you get it behind those decks and you say to yourself, that first song, everyone in this room is going to know that I'm behind the decks now. You, and, and, and that's something that's also like a little like trick or well, I wouldn't say trick but like a motivating factor for me whenever I want to get noticed or, or have wanted to build my career in, in having people know who I am is when you take over from a DJ make sure that that first song and obviously dependent on what time you're playing but if you're playing a main set and you're in a room full of people make sure that that first record gets everyone's attention and you put all of that together and it's difficult doesn't matter if you're 60 years old it's difficult to get sick of that feeling yeah. that when you know the the way you've mapped this whole thing out in your head and how it transcends to a live set you can't get sick of that man mm. that's why you get rock stars that are 80 years old and still touring because okay they're making their own music and the demand and the money is there but playing to a crowd is the the higher that you get is difficult to get sick of and i'm lucky enough to be able to to play the cool gigs when i get that feeling if i was just getting booked for commercial gigs and corporate gigs and and those are all necessary and they pay well and it's very important you have to be diverse in our market at least Mm. especially if you're not producing music and you're just djing you're gonna have to be a bit versatile but um it's it's that's what keeps me motivated is that you know i'm still very passionate about the music um i'm still able to play at uh, you know at clubs and at events that is still at the forefront of what's going on in the industry i host my own events which kind of allow me to portray my vision in terms of how an evening is programmed and playing those sets motivate me so you know, I think I'm far from done. I have a joke with my wife that, you know, she always asks me how much longer do, do I think that I'm going to be doing this? And I've been saying probably for another 10 years, I've been saying for 10 years. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's, it's difficult to get sick of. I mean, I've, I'm lucky enough to be a dad now of twins and, you know, spending more time with them is, is a priority for me. But, you know, this is not forever. Yeah. There's going to come a time where, it, you know, it's not cool to see a 60-year-old DJ. At least in our world. Overseas, in Ibiza, it's quite common, yeah. especially if you're influential. I mean, Pete Tong is like 58 years old, 57 years old. Carl Cox, Cox is 54, 55. You know, but the, the, those are, are pioneers. You know, I, uh, I think I'll DJ until I'm 80. Uh, you know, socially and and so on. So that will never really go away. But, you know, it's going to come a time where I'm like, okay, it's time for me to stop chasing the gigs. Yeah. And I hope that when I'm 50 and 60, I still get an opportunity to play at the cool gigs because that ability to manipulate the mood of a room doesn't go away. Yeah. Uh, you may become a bit more nervous and, and, you know, if you haven't done it in a while or whatever, but 
It's like riding a bike. It's like anything. You know that if something is not working, you've got to do this. And you know that if the energy level is there, you need to give them a little mm. bit more of that. So I'm still as motivated. I'm not trying to be Tiesto, but I am very motivated to still keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and I think there's a realization that when you realize that what, the idea that you have in your mind's not working, you've got to just say, just like I acknowledged that I was never going to be a producer, you've just got to say to yourself, look, there are guys that do it better than you. And just a personal life motto is that I want to do everything that I, whether it's walking a dog or running or swimming, like I want to do everything at the highest level. Yeah. So there's a personal, um, like I'm cheating myself if I'm continuing to do something when I know there's loads of people that should be doing this in place of me and they're better at doing it. How, I, like, I've got a lot of things going on, you know, this, you know, we're at this venue today, which is a new venue, a venture of mine, and um, you know, I'm motivated about different things. Uh, so, you know, if the DJing falls away, you know, it's one of those things. But I believe I've still got a lot to give. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep at it and keep monitoring it. But, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely not forever. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing is that you wouldn't still be doing this if you'd got into it for any other reason than you love that feeling. You love connecting with people and you love exposing them to music that they haven't heard before. If you were in this for fame or in this for... Uh, seeing sort of progress in that as you said like the, the guy that you got into it with if you're not seeing that progress and that's the reason that you're doing it it eventually falls away you yeah. give up you find something else something that pays better because this industry is not <laughs> if you're in this for the money the likelihood is you'll give up after a couple yeah, of years yeah it's especially in, in, in the more white dance scene the, the urban dance scene is, is, is quite different but still it um, that's a conversation for, yeah, for yeah, yeah. Uh, um. but uh, yeah you know it's as cliched as it sounds it's like it's all about the music it's about having fun and if you don't take yourself too seriously and just enjoy it you'll be surprised at what the opportunities that open up to you you know what I mean like don't you know, don't think that you can gun this alone. You know what I mean? It's a, it's, it's not a solo sport. It's a, you know, just collaborate as much as you can. Get friends bookings. They'll get you bookings. Uh, and and that you'll be able to build some sort of momentum that would feed whatever drive you have for this thing. And uh, take it seriously, but don't think that that it's the be all and the end all because yeah. it isn't. What would you say has been sort of the highlight or one of the highlights of your career? Obviously, it's expanded. It's had such a, a sort of large expanse of 20 years. What is the moment that you can still think back on, like, with clarity now and go, that for me is standout, the best moment I've had? You know, it's like you... I mean, it's this... can be this, this funny mind power, positive thinking and whatever, but, like... I, I was always very motivated to play overseas. I got to play at Ministry of Sound, one highlight. Um, but probably the most significant uh, was playing at um, the Left Parade in Germany, oh, yeah. which was 
the the first love parade that was outside of Berlin, which was in Essen, in, in Germany. And there was a South African float uh, that was able to get put together, and um, a couple of people played on that. Yeah, Leah played, Roger Delax played, uh, Ryan Den played, uh, Nick Grater played, and it, it was a mind-blowing experience because we got to um, to play to 1.2 million people and this float just went around into areas where people almost emulated ants there were people everywhere there were people climbing up light poles there were just people everywhere and this float would just travel slowly and we would be playing music to everyone and um, that was definitely one it's just I've never played a gig like it it's so unique in its format um, that it's definitely like it, it's one of the things that trigger in, in, in memory of, of shows that um, were highlights for me that's without a doubt one of the highlights for sure okay I think one last thing I wanted to just ask you was Obviously, this video, and I, re- I mentioned to you before we started, it was one thing I really wanted to do was give people sort of a context of your career because I'm sure there's a lot that people, whether they're fans of dance music from, from when you started, that know the brands like Flyhouse and Bump and all those clubs that, that you were part of, to the guy that just wants to learn how to become a DJ and knows who you are. I think the, the whole motivation for this video was to offer them something like that. So I think to f- sort of phrase a question in a different way if you had to sort of if somebody had to come to you and look for advice from you and they're playing like their biggest gig of their life in the next week but they've never played before they've just been granted this opportunity to play to a thousand people how would you prepare them for that with only a week like what would what would you make them focus on solely rather than sort of saying you have like six months to learn the, the technical side of things you just you have to have the fundamentals down in that week. Well, look, I mean, if we had, if time wasn't an issue within that week, and I was able to dedicate um, time to them, like for eight hours a day, you know, learning the technical side is like riding a bike. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. So, um, you know the safest thing to do would be to make sure that he was equipped with every hit that if his technical side failed him his music side would would carry him over but um off the bat i would say i would say to him listen okay let's let's maybe tweak it a bit if He's semi-experienced. He's been DJing for like two, three months, and now he's got an opportunity to play in front of 10,000 people. It would be easier for me to equip him with some tools in order to say, well, you know, if this happens, this is what you do and whatever. But ultimately, the music is what is going to save you. I mean, how many times do we see um, DJs in clubs that, technically are quite shit but you know they they kind of rock a crowd because they've got the music so you can get it away with a lot if you just focus on making sure you have the right weapons and weapons being music so 
that week with that person who's never learned how to DJ, it's going to be an intense boot camp of learning beat matching and, and, and everything else. But, you know, if he literally, and let's just say that those thousand people actually didn't know much about anything, and if he literally just dropped music without beat matching them, he probably could get away with it and no one actually would know any different. So, you know, it's, it's circumstance, you know, if... if if he's playing to a, an educated crowd, you can hold that a shit. <laughs> Make sure that my advice to him would be: don't even do that because your 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 reputation will end before it even starts. Um, you know, and and that's just also just knowing your capability and you know a crowd that that is at Madison and a crowd that is at Truth is a very different crowd and a lot more forgiving at a Madison than at Truth. And I'm not saying Madison is that uneducated crowd, but there are levels. Um, But I'm saying, imagine you're at a corporate gig where the people really just want to hear the music that they want to know and they don't know much about the technical aspect of it. Equip yourself with the right music. Whether it's commercial, I mean, I played a corporate gig not too long ago where I had to play Afrikaans music and I didn't have Afrikaans music. And what I had to do is I asked the, the, the tech guy if they had a small... Uh, orgs to RCA and I YouTubed Afrikaans music and I mixed it into through my phone I just dropped mixed and <laughs> mixed it into the phone I mean the sound quality was terrible yeah. but People I mean that was a, that was a first for me in my career and I then realised I must always have a folder of Afrikaans in case of emergency and I'm like, all, all jokes aside I've got an Afrikaans folder <laughs> for the corporate gigs yeah. I'm saying but I got paid a lot of money to play and I needed to make a plan. And the only thing I could think of was my phone, plugging it in, and I played Los Lapi on my phone and it rocked. And I improvised. Yeah. Again, it's like you can't, that's experience that you can't, you can't just take a pull for. So be prepared. Something you can't prepare for in a for week sure. is learning how to, learning how to, mold and move a crowd the way that you you want them to it's 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 as you say i've seen it happen a lot of the time as or where somebody will come with that folder of hits and it doesn't work it doesn't work there's so much more to it than just playing 10 of the biggest songs that in means half that an hour. crowd is a little bit more educated than your you know corporate gig crowd and it's going to take some some creativity and skill to to, to, to get the energy levels up and you know that's that's just the beauty of it it's never going to be the same thing so yeah cool well thanks for taking the time cool, to man. do Thank this you. I hope that people can find some meaning in it and that they can take some inspiration or just that they enjoyed hearing your story because I cool. think it's it's an interesting one it's one that I think because you've been doing this for so long your name has become synonymous with house music in the country so people consider you a pioneer in South African dance music. Yeah. So I think giving that context now and being able to tell your story, I would find this interesting. So I hope somebody cool. else does Thank too. you, man. Thank cool. you. And it's thanks fun. for having us at your venue. <laughs> cool. <We'll laughs> sneak peek.